Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Moz Afsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And today I have the Macro A-Team with me, um, with uh, Stefan, Daniel, Gianluigi, Joaquin, and of course, Paul Temperton, who's a mystery employee, actually he's not works for EFG, but uh, he is a ghost contributor to us and um, uh, certainly a very important part of our macro thinking. So this uh, week we have our special insight podcast, which is uh, really an aid memoir to go alongside the uh, Q2 2022 insight document, uh, the quarterly market review. Uh, And for those of you who haven't had access to that, please go to the EFG website, You'll see it on there and actually you can click the podcast in the PDF or indeed just listen to the podcast um, and go alongside the document. Very much the idea of this Insight podcast is to really add some of the, 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 the backroom thinking and the thoughts that go into the document given this is you know, quite an important document for us. We certainly try to document our views as we go through uh, the the quarters and the years, so um, we're going to kind of flip on to um, page two of the document. A little bit of an overview. Uh, we're going to f- we're going to go in a slightly different format this time because we're going to we're going to debate some things. Given that we're at a important juncture for financial markets, loss of cross currents uh, in interest rates in the United States, but everywhere really, and a very divergent global economy this time around, something that we haven't seen for many, many years. And so uh, certainly the picture sometimes can can be uh, seemingly a lot more confusing, uh, especially given the Russia-Ukraine um, war and the uh, implications for the global economy and financial markets. So, um, so I'm going to start off with, uh, on that note, uh, with Paul. Um, so Paul, obviously we've seen this kind of big ratchet in uh, commodity prices as a result of the Russia-Ukraine uh, crisis. Do you want to give us a bit of a view as to, you know, um, you know why that has kind of crept into some of the um, um, you know, inflation metrics or people starting to worry a lot more about inflation um, as if it wasn't there before. <laughs> it certainly was there before, <laughs> but it certainly hit a crescendo right. uh, back in uh, back in February. But uh, certainly oil price has dropped off quite a lot, uh, 20% plus since that time. It's dropped off a lot. Um, I, I suppose the chart to start with is figure two. And this really develops a point that Stefan has made a few times, that when inflation rises sharply, we've seen it before, we saw it after World War Two, we saw it in the oil crisis and so on, it, it doesn't stay there. It generally falls back quite quickly. But what makes this different, I think, is that you pick out the main proximate causes for higher inflation, not necessarily the underlying causes, money growth or fiscal easing and so on, but the main proximate causes. This rise in inflation is a combination of all the three that we've seen in the past. Um, So in other words, uh, it's pent-up demand. It's what we saw after World War II, this time after COVID. You know, excess savings, people are able to go out and spend more. Uh, It's supply chain problems, which we've seen after wars. And uh, now we've seen after COVID. And that's taken on a new dimension because supply sh- chain logistics difficulties have morphed into shortages of supply of key commodities. Uh, and then commodity prices themselves, oil, but also important, it's not just that this time around. 
it's agricultural commodities, you know, corn and sort of the commodities used in the transition to uh, the new, in new green sort of environments. It's a combination of all three. Um, I think that's what puts commodities in a slightly different light. I mean, also a point that we've made uh, uh, du- during this sort of surge in oil prices is that most economies are much less oil dependent they were in the 1970s and 1980s. So, yes, of course, it's a concern. Um, I think it's extraordinarily difficult to predict oil prices. We do do that. Gian Luigi <laughs> does that. Uh, but it's very, very hard. So I think when we go on to sort of look at the estimates of what the OECD thinks m- might be, might result from the, the conflict, the war between Russia and Ukraine... Um, then we have to treat them probably more as a ready reckoner rather than sort of estimates of what's going to happen. Already, you know, their forecast, we haven't got the IMS forecast yet, they'll come out sort of in a, in a week or two ahead of their spring meetings. Already their forecasts are looking, at, well, a little bit suspect because they're on the basis of oil prices staying at a $110 per barrel on average over the course of the next year. Now, You'd have to be very brave to say, well, no, now I think they're going to average 90 or whatever, but 110 does look too high. Um, so their forecast, which is inflation in most main regions increases by around about two percentage points, and growth is hit globally by about one, but with a much bigger impact in Europe than the rest of the world, you have to take with a bit of a pinch of salt, because they are on the basis of oil prices staying at this elevated level. I suppose there's more of a chance that non-oil commodity prices do stay elevated. And that's, again, a combination of supply difficulties, uh, especially in agricultural commodities, and some you know, limited supply sort of industrial commodities. So this is on on um, charts number three and charts number four. So this sort of shows the effects of um, on GDP, global GDP. So roughly one percent. Yep. Uh, globally, obviously, Europe is a lot higher, and then in terms of inflation, roughly around two percent to two two and a half percent. So that that certainly where beginning of the year, and I think the Federal Reserve as well, was probably looking for inflation to already start to kind of drop off by the time we get to the second half of the year. Um, you know, there's probably some delays to that uh, in, the, in the short term. Well, and yes, of course, and, and 2% on top, I mean, just doing some very, very rough numbers, but 2% on top of the inflation rates we've got now in many regions means that a 10% number can be seen, and 10%, you know, is a highly significant yeah. <laughs> psychologically it is a sort of benchmark number if we do get to 10% inflation I'm not saying it's absolutely going to happen but there's a, there's a pro- chance of that happening I think what's interesting when you're looking at um, so, some of these some of this data and one thing there's always you know I always try to remind people I did it this morning in a, in a call we had was that for every action there's a reaction Absolutely. And certainly on the reaction side, we've seen the strategic reserves being kind of unleashed. Uh, we've also seen, um, uh, obviously, China slowdown and, and huge lockdowns uh, developing. Um, and that certainly has had an impact on the uh, oil price. Um, it was probably something we didn't expect. Well, no, the best cure for high prices is high prices, mm. as 
some economists have been known to say. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think that, you know, we we do sometimes forget that, yep. that um, people's behaviours change. I, I think I, I, I read somewhere this morning that uh, they are talking about reducing the temperature in offices, uh, government offices by one degrees, um, either high or low, depending on the summer or winter, yep. Um, yep. Uh, to to offset some of the uh, energy usage. But, uh, you know, and even, I guess, in um, extreme circumstances, uh, given that we are all used to working from home, it, you could very easily see, you know, countries, if the oil price, you know, remained sticky, um, coming in and saying, well, look, uh, you know, on this week, if your if your uh, if your surname begins at the first thirteen letters of the alphabet, you don't work. You work from home, and don't, the other, don't travel. Uh, don't yeah. travel. So, yep. so I think there are these extreme measures that can come into force, which um, which I think does lead to, you know, that that impact. I was talking about every action creates a reaction. Yes, that those higher oil prices can certainly have yep. um, uh, a big impact, and as we've seen from the Indians and the Chinese they're very happily buying <laughs> Russian oil as well at discounted prices so there are lots of um, puts and takes uh, w- within the kind of commodity complex uh, that uh, we need to to certainly think about now one of the big challenges um, with these high commodity prices is then this huge ratchet in interest rate expectations that we now have so um, at at the at the time of recording, this is um, on the eleventh uh, of April. Um, the um, the Fed had priced in, uh, or Fed curves, should I say, had priced in around eleven rate hikes. Uh, in fact, a little bit more than that, uh, of twenty five basis points. Um, and I think that, um, um, and certainly what we saw, uh, the two Bs, Bullard and Brainard, <laughs> both. Um, um, uh, suggest uh, that the Fed will raise 50 basis points and I think various um, uh, economists and investment banks have now got three 50 basis point rate hikes in the next meetings, so three meetings. Um, so quite aggressive moves. I guess um, I'm going to um, bring in Stefan here. I guess that brings in the debate of whether the Fed will make a mistake, You know, which is one of the predictions we made at the beginning of the year. Yeah, well, it certainly seems a little bit uh, like that could well happen. Um, it's I mean, it, raising interest rates so much so quickly after many years of so having been very careful, very deliberate in tightening monetary policy and tightening interest rate policy. If you if you raise rates by 100 basis points just in, in, in two months or 150 basis points in, in three months, that is a very unusual move. And... Um, one can but worry that perhaps something will get unstuck if that if that happens. So I think the uh, uh, this is not an easy uh, uh, thing for the Fed to do, and I think the risk that something could go wrong must be elevated. And um, obviously, one of the things that suddenly went through my mind is that expectations since the beginning of the year have changed so dramatically um, that, in some respects. And um, uh, you know, isn't Powell being a bit of a genius here? He's he's actually without doing anything, he's um, talked up the curve, talked up interest rate expectations, so that maybe 
for whatever reason, inflation starts to roll off. There's a Russia-Ukraine deal. There is, um, you know, uh, an amazing harvest in the United States. Um, you know, any of those outcomes that could come along and inflation does start to ease off maybe quicker than expectations. Um, um, have they bought themselves some flexibility? Yeah. Well, I think this, uh, I mean, as you say, with inflation, I think it's uh, it's quite possible that the inflation will turn and will turn rapidly. Uh, I was looking today at the Cleveland Fed, uh, which has this now costing measure of inflation that is uh, every day of the month, they will tell you their best estimate as of that day of what inflation will be. Um, and uh, those estimates suggest that inflation will fall uh, between March and April. So we could have hit the, the turning point. And this is something, of course, that you have argued repeatedly. We're going to have the the big um, base effects coming in uh, in April, May, uh, and, and June. So it is possible that we will see a big change in the uh, inflation environment. And of course, if that were to happen, that would immediately have a big impact on, on, on Fed policy. So I think the... Um, uh, the situation is quite, it's, it's a bit of a knife edge situation, I think. I can see this sort of working out in either, either direction, inflation not coming down and, and the Fed needing to raise interest rates more rapidly, but also that uh, the increases that are priced in, if they happen, uh, might slow the economy and expectedly could have a big hit, for instance, in the U.S. housing markets where mortgage interest rates are coming up. Those are very important in the U.S. and one could well imagine that if something, uh, if, if rates were to bubble up too quickly, this could uh, start slowing the economy and perhaps uh, raise the, rate, the, the risk of a, um, of a recession. So it's, it's, a, it's a very unpleasant situation uh, to be in, I'm sure Jay Powell thinks. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, maybe my interpretation is slightly different. Maybe, Daniel, I'll, I'll bring you in here. But um, um, I guess I always think about where the Federal Reserve is relative to market expectations. Right, so market expectations are now 11 or 12 rate hikes. So the path that the Fed can follow, so let's take, for example, inflation is worse than expected, it continues to stay sticky. sticky. Surely that's already been priced in. So the Fed just follows the path of the market and says, you know, 50, 50, 50, you know, over the next three meetings, for argument's sake. Daniel, what, what do you think that does in terms of kind of, um, you know, expectations, you know, management as it comes to the Federal Reserve and obviously market uh, uh, expectations? Well, the, the classic barometer of uh, of this and whether the Fed is doing too much or too little is the slope of the yield curve. And, um, of course, that's flattened a lot recently and some people are saying that that's a harbinger of recession. So I think that as the Fed hikes um, at the short end, I think the, the test for the market will be whether or not the yield curve uh, continues to stay positively sloped or if indeed the long end rallies as uh, the short end sells off. And if, you know, if that were to happen and we were to see an inversion, then clearly that would be a more worrying signal. I think what's a bit more reassuring is that uh, you know, the last time we saw a similar situation was in the mid to late 90s and we actually saw the yield curve slope. Um, it, it, it flattened, but then it stayed 
relatively flat but still positive for some number of years. And over that period, the market actually behaved reasonably well. And I think that's, in some respects, looking over previous periods when the Fed has hiked, that's the, sort of the classic response. Uh, obviously, every cycle is different and there has its own idiosyncrasies. But I think, you know, the Fed only ever hikes into economic strength when it's confident the economy is sufficiently robust to withstand that. That's normally a decent environment for um, uh, corporate earnings. And so uh, at the very least in the first stage of rate hiking, you normally see uh, a decent uh, response from equity markets and other risk assets. But I think, you know, um, clearly lots of uncertainty at the moment. Expectations are jumping about all over the place. And um, there is a risk that the, uh, you know, the Fed uh, does make a mistake somewhere along the line. Mm, so certainly something to watch out for. And I just referred to um, figures eight and nine uh, that Daniel uh, alluded to, which actually shows that certainly for the S&P 500, um, you know, returns uh, in such environments are actually quite uh, quite quite reasonable. Um, so um, one of the things that obviously is maybe puzzling to all of us is obviously ECB rate expectations, uh, Jan Luigi, in the same context. What's your, um, uh, you know, what's your assessment of what's priced in at the moment, and and um, you know, do we believe them? Well, honestly, it's quite hard to believe what markets priced in for for the ECB over the next twelve months. Uh, possibly uh, replicating what is expected for the Fed. Now, markets have priced in between six and seven rate increases. Uh, by March 2023, which uh, honestly looks a bit, uh, well, more than a bit uh, more aggressive than uh, would be justified. Even listening to what uh, the ECB itself has been saying by by the words of President Lagarde and Chief Economist Philip Lane, they all uh, acknowledge, of course, that inflation is much higher than, than their target, but at the same time, they also stress the risks uh, to the economy that uh, come from the uh, crisis in Ukraine and the spike in commodity prices. And uh, the conclusion is that, yes, they can move a bit uh, faster on uh, asset purchases, ending, ending them a few months before what pre- was previously expected. But at the same time, they will be very cautious not to uh, replicate the mistake the ECB itself did in 2008 and 2011 when when they raised rates while the economy was clearly losing momentum and eventually they had to uh, you know revert quickly uh, the, the the previous decision and what was not good for also for their credibility of course no, absolutely it does seem quite hard to believe it was priced in to the um, into the euro curves uh, at this at this point in time so I suspect we'll find uh, some um, pulling back of that, maybe in line with um, uh, with the Federal Reserve, if indeed the Fed uh, does do it. But it does seem uh, certainly uh, extended at this point in time. Uh, so uh, we'll move on to page five and just a quick rundown of asset market performance in, in the first quarter. Um, um, obviously, they've already happened. But uh, maybe one area that uh, probably surprised most, certainly for, since the beginning of the year, is asset market performance of Brazil. So, uh, maybe Joaquin, do you want a quick comment on uh, on yeah. that? Yeah, so in, in equity markets, uh, on one, one side we had, on the developed market side, we had the UK 
posting the 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 best returns in in, in US dollar terms um, we know as an economy very dependent uh, or the market is, is very dependent on, on what happens with with commodity prices as well but in in the in Brazil it's been the strongest uh, among um, all all emerging with uh, returns of over 30 percent in, in in US dollar terms which has been magnificent has been uh, mostly driven by this improvement in in the currency with uh, gains of over 15 percent in the in the real uh, mostly driven by, 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 by two things the improvement in the terms of trade that is the difference between the prices of the goods that Brazil export and the prices of those that they import um, and also the um, the inflows into the into the domestic market like Brazil is one of the is a net exporter of commodities, not only of agricultural products, but also uh, oil. Uh, and therefore, this global context of, of commodity prices rising is, is clearly a, a positive thing for them. And from, a, from an investor perspective, Brazil is much more um, detached from the, all the noise happening in, in, in Ukraine. Um, and they can definitely step up and, and supply part of the uh, demand in the world for some of the grains and, 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 and energy that that uh, the world needs at the moment. So, um, yeah, and, and that all, all that comes in a context where um, Brazilian equities have been relatively cheap. They have been unfavored by, by some investors uh, over the last few years, and there's a lot of noise um, over the over the elections coming later this year. So, yeah, kind of like a, a, a perfect storm uh, working on their, on their favor. Mm, absolutely. So... Certainly, that uh, that was good. I think the other sort of notable asset market performance is probably fixed income. Um, given how poorly fixed income has performed uh, in in Q one and actually early part of uh, of April, um, the volatility is just as much as equity, if not more, um, which has made it very very challenging for multi asset investors in this uh, in this environment. Probably, I would argue, probably the most challenging. That we've seen for quite a few years, actually, where you've got uh, you know equity markets down, um, not not hugely so, um, but you've got bond markets down more than equity markets, which you know which is very unusual, and and, and high yield has been one of the best performing uh, fixed income asset classes in uh, in um, in 2022 so far, uh, even with a falling equity market, so uh, quite unusual. Um, set of circumstances and uh, you know it doesn't really happen uh, you know particularly often uh, so let's move on to the United States section of uh, the insights is on page six um, so um, obviously um, we talked a little bit about uh, inflation uh, and interest rates and what's built into the curve um, maybe the cause and effect of that uh, Paul is is very much uh, the labour market, which you know, um, I was um, you know looking at initial jobless claims last week, that we saw at the lowest level since 1968. Yep. Um, that's a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. Well, we, we tried to put this in a bit of context, and the context is the Fed's re- review of how they run monetary policy. It was concluded in 2020, and that was we can take risks with running the economy a bit hot and have the labour market a bit tighter, uh, as long as inflation doesn't get out of control. And so we raise the question of, okay, was that a bit of a misjudgment? It's got too out of control because it's basically 
too tight. And one of the measures we use for that is a comparison of number of unemployed and the job openings survey. And job openings are almost twice the size of the number uh, of unemployed. Um, and so uh, there are a lot of jobs available and there aren't people that are there sort of filling them. So that might be due to some sort of structural difficulties in the market post-COVID sort of response. Um, but it doesn't look as though it's temporary. And so certainly that is now leading some people, uh, Larry Summers this morning, for example, uh, to say that this is just excessively tight and we run the risk of much higher uh, inflation as a result of that. Um, we, we, you know, we acknowledge that. I mean, the number, you have to sort of make sure you're reading it right the, at the bottom of the first, para, uh, uh, first column. Hourly rage, uh, wages in the final quarter of last year were 7.5% higher than in the previous quarter. Not the previous year, so 7.5% higher than the previous quarter. And you think, good gracious, wages up by 7.5% in one quarter. That's surely disastrous for inflation. Um, I always remember the Margaret Thatcher comment, that you can have higher wages if you earn them and you produce more. Well, productivity was 6.5% growth, so wage cost per unit of output grew by 1%. So what's the problem? Um, I think the answer is, is there is no problem as long as wage growth is matched by high productivity growth. But both of those look to me as though they're just temporary phenomena due to reopening and the unusual labour market. So I don't think we immediately jump to the Larry Summers type conclusion that this is just crazily hot and we need to have a much softer labour market, potentially a recession, um, to calm this down. I think the other key, key sort of um, direction here is that we still have 2 million people that haven't come back into the workforce yeah. since, since, uh, since COVID. Um, and I guess what needs to be done to get those 2 million people back is the kind of first element to this. And then I've also heard a lot more noise around immigration, yep. uh, U.S. immigration. And obviously, since the Trump, Trump regime, immigration has fallen off a cliff and actually hasn't even improved during the Biden administration either. Um, and um, which people naturally expected that immigration would improve as a result of that. But they haven't. Um and uh, so there are, uh, you know, there is a, there is a kind of, um, you know, confusion. I would say is that if immigration does start to pick up, if those two million people do go back, retrained in a more productive part of the economy, um, you know, that um, you know we, we could see some alleviation. And um, um, you know, Daniel's drawing the analogy of the mid '90s, which was a hugely productive period for uh, the U.S. economy. I mean, I think also some of the employment could actually not be recognised in the US statistics. I was just in California last week and 
this is what's going on in the tech sector. Tech sector won't actually sponsor green cards. Green cards are very much in the news in the UK at the moment. <laughs> um, they won't sponsor green cards any longer because there is no need to have people to come and work in the US. So right. they can stay in, for example, India, you know, big sort of area that has provided recruitment into the sort of tech sector in the, in the past. Um, so that means that immigration just through that one channel is much lower. Um, That's a very good point, actually, because I guess I think about work from home. Absolutely. Um, you, don't need, you don't need people to move. You don't need people to move, yeah. No. Yeah, Especially yeah. in the tech sector, you can just stay in um, Hyderabad or wherever and do that job. You don't or need London. to move. <laughs> or London, yes, exactly. It doesn't have to be India. There's also an, an effect of the, of the pandemic here because it could happen in the service sector. We've seen that in the UK with... With, with Brexit as well, it, it just happened at the same time as as the as the pandemic kicking kind of um, away some of the, 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 the labor force in the service sector. And if you were working in the service sector in the US and you suddenly your organization closes or you don't have a job anymore, you go back to your country, you don't, you don't stay unemployed there. Right. And maybe those people are not back yet. Uh, and you can see that on uh, hotels, restaurants, bars, uh, everything related to the service sector. So. Um, that's also probably a part of the immigration that's not coming back. Exactly. So I think, um, you, you know, it's really difficult to pick out exactly what the slack may be. Um, we still have those two million people um, and, uh, you know, work from home is, I can certainly see why productivity may be great or be looking exceptionally good if um if the um, if the people are actually not in the country absolutely um, so yeah. that certainly is a strong case to be made for uh, distortion of um of the uh, statistics um i'm going to sort of pivot a little bit right to the back page 11 um to um the special focus section and inflation expectations um and um um you know maybe stefan um in terms of um, expectations. Uh, there's a great chart actually on, on pay on on number fifteen or indeed um, number thirty. We've got this kind of strange situation where we've got short-term inflationary expectations ratcheting higher, but actually long-term inflation expectations are remain you know, fairly muted. Um, what what are your thoughts on that? And how do you think a central banker would interpret those? So we, if you look at, for instance, graph 15, we see that one-year expectations have risen a lot and, and five-year expectations have only risen a little bit. And that's, of course, compatible with the idea that um, consumers don't think that the high inflation rate is going to stay around for long. It's going to stay around for one year. And, of course, since that year is part of those five years, five-year uh, expectations rise a little bit. But but I think the main, the main lessons from, uh, from that graph is that... Uh, and consumers don't expect inflation to stay this high for, for long. And I think that is what central banks will, will, will take with them from the graph. Uh, Paul, um, in terms of, you know, um, any kind of additions to that, you know, to, to that point, because, you know, I guess that explains why the yield curve is, is so flat um, and, and can go inverted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what we do in the special focus is we look at different ways of assessing inflation expectations. I think that was quite a... For me, that was a very interesting exercise. The, um, the bond market's better than consumers. 
over the limited amount of time that we can assess that. Because what you're doing is you're comparing the yields on inflation-protected securities and conventional bonds. Uh, and so on average, the, um, the, the break-even rate is better than consumer inflation expectations. Um, but that only happens because of a somewhat strange feature which is related to the liquidity in the market. Essentially, when you get a recession... Uh, inflation expectations drop off a cliff. And so that those instances, in global financial crisis being the main one, bias down the average sort of inflation expectation from that market. So that's the reason why it does better. But, but I love the uh, Cleveland Fed survey of different sources of inflation expectations. Say, so you've got those two, you've got the bond market, uh, you've got consumer inflation uh, expectations, You've got businesses' expectations, another survey by another uh, Fed, uh, and then you've got expectations produced by professional economists. <laughs> now, Mo's, who do you think has the best inflation forecast? Of course, it's the professional economists. And they come way ahead if you take this survey all the way back uh, to the early 1980s. Professional economists win, hands down. Um, and the market, the sort of implied inflation, is the worst. Very interesting. Yes. So, Mose, you need to continue employ, employ some more economists <laughs> um, because we're generally a lot better than the market. Mm-hmm. And I know you asked me one question about the five-year, five-year forward inflation rate. Yes. And what that makes me is incredibly sceptical about whether that could be a good guide. Because it's not just taking the implied inflation rate over the next five years, starting now for five years, but it's deriving from the swaps market the five-year inflation rate on average in five years' time. Well, if you think implied inflation rate just for five years is poor then it's doubly poor, I would suggest, if it's five years forward. Mm. So, I don't know, it's, ma- it's made me really rather sceptical about those implied inflation forecasts from the market. And, and I'm going to trust professional economists all the time as a result of this assessment. <laughs> very, very, very good. But, but it, it is interesting because I think the amount of scepticism the, peop- the Fed has had and the economists have generally had about, you know, transitory inflation and so on and so forth you know, it does is it, very interesting well, it, well it, it suggests it'll just be a transitory blip for professional <laughs> economists <laughs> absolutely very good I, I think the debate is actually very interesting i think we often forget with with five year five year inflation in five years time is liquidity is very poor so very as a result you know one small trade can actually distort the entire feature um, and we shouldn't forget that. It yeah, it's, strike, not, it's, not, no. it's not a big liquid market. It's not. It's a manifestation of the special features of the markets and the swap market in particular. And I, I and, 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 I, and I have seen many, many um, um, strategists, equity strategists rather than fixed income strategists, tend to look, that, look at that a lot um, and talk about it a lot. And uh, I guess that's why they should stay doing equities and let uh, economies do the fixed income job. They, they do, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I have noticed that, actually. It's a very interesting. So let's move on um, to the UK. Um, 
and uh, we're on back flipping back to page seven and the discussion around um, real wages and prices. I guess it's the same challenges as the US. Um, and um, I guess um, you know, Daniel, any sort of kind of key thoughts? You know, I, I one big thing that we we've kind of forgotten in all of this isn't this level of inflation, this level of growth fantastic for paying down or deflating away all that debt that we've uh, that we've uh, accumulated over the last decade well it would be if wages were growing at the same rate but uh, you know as uh, as we note in this section actually real wages are uh, suffering a very sharp decline or real uh, personal disposable income and suffering a very sharp decline in the UK. I think that's an interesting contrast with the US where wage inflation has been much stronger. And whilst, you know, the UK experience has been very similar to the US in some respects, uh, the, you know, notable point of difference is uh, just this lack of wage inflation in the UK. So that makes it obviously much harder for people to uh, to pay down um, debt so much. Obviously, uh, it's good for the government because um, government receipts will be going up and so forth, and um, it helps to deflate the government's uh, uh, debt-to-GDP ratio just by virtue of the fact that nominal GDP will be going up. But, uh, yeah, it's notable that we're seeing this, this lack of wage inflation in the UK, which is interesting given that, you know, labour markets are also um, quite tight there. I think, uh, yeah, the other sort of feature of the UK, of course, and I suppose it's also uh, germane to the US, is that UK is running these two very large deficits and um, so is uh, subject and hostage to the kindness of strangers to keep funding those two big deficits. And that's something you know, that the, the Chancellor, notwithstanding his recent controversies, will have to uh, take into account, you know, what, what's the appropriate speed for trying to shrink, in particular, the fiscal deficit, whilst um, managing the economy and making sure that it's not too damaging. So it's a difficult set of circumstances in the UK, and of course compounded even further by, uh, by Brexit and the complications there. So yeah, it, it's quite quite tricky for the UK at the moment. And um, obviously we've seen um, tax rates go up, and obviously Rishi Sunak has been <laughs> lambasted for uh, ways of, um, of uh, uh, getting away with it. Um, but... Um, uh, to, to be honest, not not really his fault, <laughs> I think. But uh, certainly, it is 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 kind of opening the debate. Do you think that? Um, um, uh, I guess certainly for our UK client base, this res non dom you know situation that's developed. Um, do, do we think that it's in danger going forward? Uh, I don't think in the short term it's in danger. I think this will probably just blow over and it will be specific to him. I think uh, at the very least um, this demonstrates his naivety and the naivety of his wife in terms of uh, not declaring it. Although obviously there's no suggestion they did anything illegal. What they did was perfectly legal and acceptable. But I think for someone in public office and a very high public office not to... um, um, you know, adopt an approach that would have been, uh, you know, fairer in terms of taxes, particularly for a man who is in a position where he's able to determine the tax rate for other people. I just think it's incredibly naive. So I think at the moment this is more personal than general. Yeah, no, I would uh, certainly uh, certainly agree with that uh, with that uh, with that view. I, 
I guess, you know, one consequence might be that they increase the fee that uh, Resnon Doms have to pay. I think at the moment it's £30,000 um, per annum. I think it then goes up after seven years to 60000 So perhaps that's one way in which uh, they might, yeah, there might be a political response to this. Mm, yeah, I suspect that's going to, I suspect that's probably going to be the outcome. Um, because I think, you know, one of the things and, you know, thinking about, about Brexit and what the UK is trying to achieve going forward is obviously around keeping you know smart professionals from around the world coming to the to to the uk to add to the economy uh, and that certainly helps uh that and um uh, you know um you know, that's the i guess the other side of the coin um, yeah well there was always that, that fear if you remember during the brexit negotiations britain's sort of uh, british government was holding out this threat of turning the uk into uh, europe's version of singapore uh, of course, uh, that's probably not very practical in the UK, uh, given the you know, Singapore is an island nation and uh, well, I suppose an island state, and the UK is a little bit bigger than that. Yeah, uh, just a bit, so yeah. not very practical, but uh, you know, interesting that that was held out. And of course, yeah, the UK will have to compete internationally. It's running this very large current account deficit, um, and so uh, for there to be any sort of Brexit dividend at all, you know, I think attracting talented foreigners in will be uh, one way in which they might be able to square the circle. Mm, no, absolutely. Anyway, very interesting debates. So it's moving on to uh, to Europe now. And obviously the big challenge in Europe is uh, obviously the Russia-Ukraine war. It certainly seems that it's going to be, you know, carrying on for, for a few more months yet. Uh, it doesn't seem to be any kind of climb down seems to be consolidation um, and uh, something can be bubbling up in the, in, in the background for some time. Um, so so Gian, Gianluigi, I guess this is all about you know, the reliance on Russia uh, and the EU's reliance on Russia. Um, uh, any sort of kind of thoughts around that uh, and, um, uh, and you know, how does kind of renewable energy... Uh, I guess one of those things start to to change in Switzerland. So maybe the first bit first. Well, definitely, the European Union is the most uh, exposed and reliant on Russian uh, energy exports uh, for uh, you know for, for sourcing its its energy needs, and this is its weakness at the current juncture. Um, the say, good uh, thing is that uh, politicians uh, reacted uh, against uh, what can be clearly labeled as a, as a potential emergency, and uh, they are now, now structuring plans to uh, overcome or at least reduce the, the burden, which means, of course, uh, uh, diverting imports from, from Russia to other uh, countries that would be willing. Of course, U.S. have been, as we know, very happily supplying about 15 billion cubic meters of, um, of natural gas uh, in liquefied form, which is more or less 10% of what uh, the EU would uh, otherwise import from Russia. So it's a little step. It's not the, the final solution, but it is a step. And definitely beyond that, uh, which actually would be uh, even more important looking at the longer-term plan of becoming a, a carbon-neutral economy as soon as possible, would be uh, an increased use of uh, renewables and also uh, the implementation of energy-saving measures. 
you mentioned before, uh, the possibility of uh, you know having heating system turned down by one degree or air conditioning turned up by one degree. Uh, well, that, according to uh, international estimates, uh, would go quite a long way, basically saving as much as the U.S. is willing to import uh, to, to sorry to export to EU in terms of natural gas, and so it's not it's no little thing. And even more so when you think that that would be a permanent decrease in demand, uh, and that would uh, completely change the picture for energy markets, uh, not just for the next few months, but for the next uh, decades. And at the same time, would put the European economy on a faster track to become carbon neutral. So paradoxically, that what what looked at as, a, a, as an immense uh, emergency could become an, a really an opportunity for the European economy and also for other economies, which could uh, you know follow the example. No, absolutely, yeah. You do think that the, the, that uh, this war has has um, let the sort of genie out the bottle, if you like. So, so it's um, certainly going to force um, change and and quite dramatic change um, uh, in a relatively short space of time. And I I don't think that was necessarily in in um, in Putin's mind when he uh, finally did uh, invade, or or indeed it was in his mind. Um, and then realize that he that um, this is going to happen anyway, so might as well try his luck now um, and try to go get away with it. But um, uh, I guess only time will tell. Um, now moving then on to um, on on Switzerland and um, you know what's going on there. I think uh, you know given the neutrality of Switzerland um, over over a very very long. Uh, time frame um, seems to be less neutrality here, and uh, and even talk about defence spending. <laughs> so, uh, what's your what's your take on this? And we've got a great chart here, um, uh, or charts both on energy consumption from non fossil fuels and uh, a little bit of thinking around uh, defence spending. Well, uh, Switzerland is benefiting uh, from an energy mix which uh, was already basically independent from Russian imports. And that is best seen in the huge difference in inflation rates, uh, even more so at producer price level between uh, Switzerland and its main trading partners, which, by the way, is also one of the reasons why the Swiss franc is uh, uh, so well uh, supported on, on, on markets. Uh, of course, uh, Switzerland is and remains a, a neutral country, but historically has often sided with the West when it when it came to impose uh, uh, or to to you know to yeah to follow the sanctions that were imposed by other countries. So that uh, it did so this time as well uh, should not be coming as a, as a big surprise. And the same is true for uh, military spending, also because. It is uh, uh, often forgotten that military spending is often linked with uh, uh, innovation, which eventually has beneficial effects on the broader economy. So it's uh, it's true that uh, there is a, uh, an apparent contradiction, but uh, eventually, if you think about the, uh, how keen uh, Swiss authorities are on fostering innovation and supporting the competitiveness of the Swiss economy by means of research and development, that is not um, that surprising. Absolutely. Now, there's a very interesting last section within our European um, um, section uh, on, on, um, uh, on page nine around demographics 
and um, the challenges the EU has in terms of population working age and obviously deflationary forces that that uh, brings about. Um, uh, any kind of thoughts on, on, on that? Well, that uh, once again makes very clear uh, a point that has been discussed by uh, policymakers for quite some time. I, I honestly uh, can't remember a time when in Italy there was no discussion about pension reform, and and, and that probably is something that needs to be tackled more uh, seriously, uh, also in other countries. And in that respect, it's interesting that President Macron raise the issue uh, at the risk of uh, his popularity and chances of being re-elected just weeks before the vote and uh, proposing, of course, that's just a proposal and uh, we'll have to go through the parliamentary debate, uh, an increase of three years in pension age in, in France. Um, and, and that, by the way, is also something that also in Switzerland would need to be uh, tackled because there's a growing deficit in uh, Swiss uh, pension, public pension accounts which unless is uh, uh, unless the, the, the pension system is reformed uh, would, would grow all the time and uh, will eventually burden the public account uh, the fiscal attractiveness of switzerland itself absolutely uh, but uh, i think that's a very interesting topic and something that we certainly will spend more time on over the coming months and indeed quarters so the last section we're going to go through today is on the um uh, emerging markets um and um and uh, you know joaquin we we've got the three bricks here um uh of uh, of the four uh your 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 thought and your thoughts on their progress and obviously the differences between between them yeah so uh, flows into uh, emerging markets and the, the attention uh, from investors into emerging markets tend to uh, fluctuate quite a lot but now in these times of uh, oil uh, volatility and, and and global uncertainty it becomes quite interesting to analyze what happens to emerging markets uh, from an investment point of view like these three countries these three high middle income countries like russia brazil and and china they tend to follow a similar path they they, they have developed quite a lot but they have kind of stagnated ar- across this um, uh, middle income trap um, that is uh, that's very well described here in the, in, in the document. Um, and we think that there are three main differences between these, these countries. The first one is kind of the, the natural endowments. Uh, Brazil and, and Russia are two very commodity-oriented countries. Uh, and probably they, they have suffered from, from that, uh, that disease, let's say, of, of having that resource and, and, and basing their economies on the production of, of gas and, 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 and oil for the case of Russia and agricultural and iron ore uh, in, in the case of, of Brazil, whereas China and the other side, they, they have developed their growth based on, on manufacturing. Uh, their, their growth has been driven into creating a, 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 that type of industry and, and, and exporting to, to the world. Uh, so that is, that is probably one of the key differences. The second one is, is capital flows, which have amplified this. Normally, uh, in the case of Brazil, for example, when uh, when a country receives this type of, of capital inflows recently, uh, this drives up the currency, something we, di- we discussed earlier, um, brings down bond yields, which, which facilitate more um, uh, lower domestic uh, financing costs, and also helps 
um, equity markets. That's been the, the textbook example of, of Brazil recently. Uh, on the other side, when when countries uh, have capital outflows, something that has been magnified in Russia with the recent sanctions, this tends to weaken the currency. This tends to weaken uh, equity markets um, and gets bond yields um, over the roof. So uh, this is this is also a, a classic example of, of how um, uh, flows into these markets can can end up aff- affecting drastically the, the, the way that this uh, this country is performed. And the third difference here is is mostly about the quality of institutions, um, the ease of doing business, the, the perception of corruption, something that emerging markets are still. Uh, dealing with are, are, are still let's say in between uh, quoting here like learning how to how to how to deal with uh, China has made a significant progress Brazil uh, still has a lot of progress to to make in terms of corruption tackling and, and ease of doing business um, and Russia will see what happens with uh, after the sanctions at the moment is, is a completely blocked country so um, yeah, quite a, a different perspective for emerging markets. I think this, it's also this highlights the, the, the need to understand the, the, the uh, differences between them and be very selective on how we approach our investment in emerging markets. Mm. I think one of the very interesting things is it's all very latent, isn't it? Because some of the world's biggest populations in Indonesia or certainly in Asia, Indonesia or India, Philippines, uh, uh, Pakistan. These are huge, huge, huge populations, mm-hmm. and um, you know, one uh, uh, certainly um, you know always feels like there's some sleeping giants, mm-hmm. you know, uh, lying in there that need to be kind of uh, you know, woken up. I guess they will at some point, just like China was um, at some point. Um, but uh, you know, uh, the the story and the promises has always been there, and uh, and Africa's probably a little bit further behind that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, uh, in 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 development, so yeah, I think you do get the sense the emerging markets are changing. Um, this is a great time to change. Um, I think macroeconomic policy generally in emerging markets is better than it has been over the last um, you know fifty years for sure. Um, that hasn't really translated into better financial market performance, uh, but um, because of exactly the points you make, is maybe too much reliance on commodities, and so. Uh, the need to change has been maybe less there uh, than it has done um, um, than it has done in other uh, cases like China. Very good. Well, Joaquin, thank you very much for that as well. So um, that wraps us up for uh, this version of the Insight podcast. Uh, I hope uh, you found that very interesting. Certainly, I enjoyed hosting um, the team to take us through it. Uh, lots and lots of takeaways. Lots of interesting thoughts. And as ever, if you want to uh, follow up on anything that we've said today, please do email us at beyond at fgam.com and we'll happily answer it. And of course, if you've got any great ideas for people we should have on a podcast or topics we should tackle on the podcast, please do indeed get in touch and let us know. Uh, So with that, thank you very much. And thank you, gentlemen, for... Uh, an excellent hour uh, and uh, we shall speak to you again next time.